we had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Now, I understand turkey makes you sleepy. Have you heard that? Have you heard that? So fight it now, all right? We had lots of turkey. We had a great time. All the kids came in. Everybody was here. We gave thanks. We recited Psalm 100 together. We want to enter his gates with thanksgiving and come to his courts with praise today. This morning I'm starting a series on the incarnation. We have an Advent wreath, and I don't want to confuse you with all of the terminology and metaphors of Christmas, but Advent is about the coming of the Savior. And the coming of the Savior is the theological truth of the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in man. God as man the meaning of the incarnation. That's what I want to talk about this week and the next four weeks as we meet together over the Christmas season. And uh, sometimes I'll be in a traditional Christmas text because those capture the meaning of the incarnation. But a couple of times, including this morning, I want to go to a different place in the text, not normally associated with Christmas, to help us understand what it means for God to become man. And for a lot of folks who embrace faith in Christ, the incarnation itself, God becoming man, is the real key theologically. It is the expression of God's love. God sent His Son. And so it looms large in our thinking how God became man in Christ. So today we go to the heart of it, and today where I want to go in in the text is the place where Jesus explains, I think very explicitly, explicitly, how the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It's a parable of Jesus, and he tells it to his friends and foes alike, in Luke chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn over there. We're going to put the Scripture on the screen, but I want you to look at it yourself and see what Jesus says in this story. Now, he's had a controversy going on, and it is of long standing. It is the question of his authority. By what authority do you do these things, and do you say these things? Who gave you this authority? This question is asked by the adversaries of Jesus over and over again because Jesus seems to talk and act as if he has some authority. In fact, the Scripture says he taught with authority and not like the scribes. In contrast to the scribes, he taught with authority. And so his authority often comes up, and that question arises in the first part of Luke 20. By what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus responds with a question about John the Baptist. Tell me, by what authority did John the Baptist do these things? And they said, we don't know. We can't say. And he said, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I am doing these things either. Then verse 9 of chapter 20, Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants 
So they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. To you, it may be cryptic. It may not be evident what this parable is about. But to Jesus' first hearers, it was ever so clear. For it drew from Isaiah 5, a very famous parable of the prophet Isaiah, also about a vineyard. And there, it was abundantly clear that the vineyard was the house of Israel God's chosen and covenant people. So when Jesus started the story with a man planted a vineyard, they immediately surmised, and rightly so, that this was a story about them, the physical descendants of Abraham. That's why when he got to the climactic part of the story and said, the owner of the vineyard is going to kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The crowd protested, may it never be, may it not be so. As I read the parable, sounds like a good idea. 
They drove his servants away. One they wounded and threw out of the vineyard. And when he sent his son, they threw him out and killed him. Sounds like a good idea. Sounds like justice, like the right thing to do. But the crowd protests, no, may it not be so. God forbid. Why? Because they know what the parable's about. It's why the chief priests and teachers of the law at the end of the parable immediately started trying to think, how could we arrest this man? We need to arrest him. He needs to be in jail. We need to get him out of here. Why? Because they knew he was talking about them. That's why. See, everybody, all the first hearers know what the story's about. It's about them. Now, I want you to tune in to the statement where in the parable, Jesus says, the owner of the vineyard will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And I want you to be asking the question all through this text, who are the others? Who are the others? He killed those tenants. He's going to give the vineyard to others. Who are they? Because I think they're you and me. Now, I bought this paper clip or this uh, clothes. That is a uh, clothespin, actually. It's not a paper clip. You could clip paper with it. In fact, you can clip a lot of different things with it. I bought this clothespin on a whim from a young lady in the streets of Accra, Accra Ghana. And uh, the team members laughed at me. Are any of them here? Those of you who thought that was funny? Oh, there she is, yeah. Probably Anna laughed the hardest. Why are you buying clothespins? And they look at the pack. They're made in China. All right, I did bring this back from Africa. It is proven to be useful. Even yesterday, we were washing up after all the families were gone, and we had used the house up. And I took a sheet out, and I put it on a clothesline. We have one of those little retractable clotheslines, you know. And I don't know whether it's being raised in the country or what, but we like to hang our sheets outside and let them dry in the sun. Does anybody else do that? Well, we have this secret little line we draw it across. And I put them up, and I didn't use the clothesline. And Janet, in a minute, she looks back there, and she says, It's falling down. And I look back, and sure enough, the wind had been whipping that sheet, and it was falling off the clothesline. So I got one of my African-Chinese clothespins. <laughs> Actually, I found three or four of them, and I clipped it up. And in fact, I clipped up some more stuff. We do our blue jeans the same way. And if you clip it, it'll stay put. All right? So I want something to stay put for you. And I've got four clothespins for you this morning. All right? For you to get a notion of what this parable's about. The first clip is this. The planner. So as not to escape your mind... Clip this in. This story is about the planter. 
with a great purpose. He plants the vineyard. It's his. And he has a plan for the vineyard from the first. It's a garden. And it's his. It reminds me, this story, of how God made the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve originally were gardeners before the fall in that garden. And part of the restoration that God has created in the human race is creating another garden, a vineyard, where people garden again. Now, I passed by some pine trees that had just been planted on one of our recent trips, and they were all in rows. I admire the person who takes their land and puts it in pine trees. You know why? They're not going to harvest for 25 years or so. Think about the person who plants pine trees. If I planted a field of pine trees today, I'd be 82 when they come in. It's a long-term investment. This planner took a plot of land and planted vines. It takes years for vines to mature. Some people say four years before you really have a crop in that garden. So he gave it to the tenants and he went away for a long time. But he expected that one day it would be productive. These tenants... are presumptuous in their attitude toward the man who owns the vineyard. They think it's theirs. They think it belongs to them. And after years have gone by, he sends a servant to receive some of the fruit, which seems absolutely natural. They won't give him any. You see, the planter had a great purpose in creating the vineyard. But the tenants do not buy into the purpose. They sin the sin of presumption, thinking that it's all about them. I wonder at the others who received the vineyard as well. He's going to give the vineyard to others. And we see historically the movement of God's Spirit from the people of Israel to the Gentile nations. And the church coming in, scattered around the world as the people of God. And I would say to you and ask you, gardeners and tenants this morning, have you started to think it belongs to you, the stuff the garden, the planet. If that thought is creeping into your mind and you feel like you have no accountability 
you're going down the same path that God's ancient people went down. And the sin of presumption has crept into your heart. I hope three days after Thanksgiving that our hearts are full of the perspective that God owns it all and we are grateful for every good thing he gives us. Gratitude is so healthy for you because it keeps you from the sin of presumption, from the mistaken notion that it's yours. It's not. Do you know what a trust the kingdom of God is? To we who tend it and keep it. It's a marvelous thing. It astonishes you every day when you wake up and think, God has partnered with us in sharing his good news. I was blessed and surprised this morning as I read this text again and noticed, it really jumped out at me, that Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the gospel. Preaching the good news. What good news? That God loves us and sent his son to be the savior of the world. That's the good news. The good news is that though we are sinners, God loves us. And Jesus was preaching the good news. And I get to preach the good news week after week. Just what Jesus did. I am blessed. And so are you. To be teaching the good news and spreading the good news and sharing the good news as a steward of the kingdom. It will prove to be your greatest trust in this life. Nothing which you tend will in the end be of more importance than this good news committed to your care. Other things distract you and sometimes consume you. And you go off on tangents and detours. But in the end... The news that God sent his son to be the savior of the world is your most treasured possession. And what you do with that and how you extend your hand out to spread it to others is the most significant work that you will do on the planet. God left you to tend the vineyard. The planner with a great purpose and the master with a generous heart. I'm astonished by the generosity of the master in this story. In fact, the generosity of God astonishes me every day when I get up. And I know you're the same, that God the creator has such an outpouring toward us. And that every day he gives us freely all these things to enjoy. It's amazing. It's wonderful. We are absolutely wonderfully blessed with a God who has such a generous heart. He's the master. He rules it all. He can do what he wants. And so he, he pours it out to us unendingly, aboundingly. I took Janet's hand at the end of Thanksgiving. I told her, we are so blessed. We're just, of all people on the planet, most blessed. I think about these tenants 
who received the vineyard from the master, but seemed to be so stingy of heart. The master plants the vineyard. He invests long term. He gives it to the farmers to tend it and to keep it and to share in its production. But when when it comes time to share, no. Instead of a generous heart, they developed a greedy heart. They don't want to give any of it to the servants who come from the master. They don't want to share any of it. They want to hold it all for themselves. Ultimately, they want the garden to be theirs. And thinking that killing the son will accomplish that. I read this story and I say, oh Lord, let my heart reflect your heart. Keep me from the sin of greed that holds on and will not share, will not let go. Forgive me for the sin that says my life consists of the things which I possess. Help me relearn the truth that what I have eternally are the things I give away. And the open hand is the hand of joy. It is the more blessed way. Lord, teach me that. We ought to learn from the Father above, from the Master, to be generous because He's been generous to us. No people who have ever lived or walked this planet have had as much as we. You know that's true. It's absolutely true. Sometimes it doesn't feel true. All right? Sometimes it feels thin and skinny. But even on the days when it feels thin, it's still absolutely true that we have more than any humans who have ever lived on the planet. You would think that if you were to sort the human race historically throughout the generations and in all the places of the earth, You would think that if you identified the group that had the most, that they would surely be the most generous. So is that true about us? You know what I discover in me? The stuff gets a grip on me. Sometimes it's harder to deal with wealth than it is with poverty. Sometimes success trips me up worse than failure. Sometimes it's harder to stay faithful when I've accumulated a lot than when I have a little. The master with a generous heart. And then the father with great patience. Well, we know he's a father. This man who owns and plants the vineyard. He has a son. 
And he is a patient man. In the story, he sends a servant. He comes back empty-handed. He sends another. Same thing happens. He sends a third. They beat him up. They wound him and throw him out of the vineyard. I'm ready to call the authorities, the police, bring in the army, the National Guard, do something. Declare martial law in my vineyard. But this owner is a man who is long-suffering. The Greek word is macrothumia. When you pray for patience, you are praying to be more like God. You know that, right? Now, how many of you pray for patience? Lord, let me be patient. I mean, it's my prayer too. And I know in my impatience, I'm not reflecting the character of the Father because he puts up with me. And sometimes I wonder why and wonder, God, can you, st- can you still really love me? What a mess I am. And yet he has this wonderful patience. And Jesus talks about it not only here in this story. This is a patient man in this story. He talks about it in the story of the prodigal son who took everything he had and went out to to a far country and lived a life completely away from the father. But the Father receives him back, restores him fully. This is a patient God we have. For everyone in the room who fears that God is impatient and run out of patience with you, let me just say, we measure patience in human terms. And God is the premier patient one if you have not gone beyond the bounds of his love his grace is greater than all your rebellion and sin he loves you still and receives you still if you are willing to come to him he's that kind of God These tenants are not those kind of people. They are given to violence. They beat up the servants and then they kill the son. When Jesus talks about them taking the son outside and casting him out and then killing him, it might sound a little strange to you. You might be thinking, why not kill him in the vineyard? Why is that part of the parable, that they cast him out and then kill him? If you think about it, you know. Because that's how they crucified the Savior. They took him, they tried him in the city, and then they took him down the road of suffering, and they went outside the gate, and they hung him on a cross outside the city. The writer of Hebrews says, let us then go outside of the camp sharing his disgrace. 
Here Jesus talks about the ultimate injustice in the world. God had one son. He sent him to the tenants of the vineyard. And they plotted and killed him. I tell you, it's an amazing thing what God has done in his love for us. Giving his only son on our behalf. Him hung up up to die upon a cross, bearing our sin as we have sung. It's an amazing thing God did for us. A great expression of his love. God demonstrated his love in this way. I think about these tenets. Even as they hear the story, they are thinking about how they can kill the son. They're already plotting it. They hear him telling the story about the master sending his own son. And they're thinking, how can we arrest him? We need to get him out of circulation. We need to get him on trial. We need to get him dead. They plotted to kill him while he's telling the story. Brothers and sisters, men and women, in this Christmas season, we are celebrating the great truth of the Incarnation. That God sent his one and only son to be a man among men and die for us upon the cross and so bear our sin and infirmity and make a way to the Father on our behalf. We are celebrating this great truth. We ought not to be calculating in our hearts as we hear the truth how we might escape it. How we might go some other direction. Or in our own lives live without the son and without the master. And tend our vineyard as if it is our own. And so live independently apart from the God who made it, cares for us, gave it to us and loves us still. Even when we hear the story. Sometimes we ourselves are plotting how we might escape its truth. He is the father with great patience and he is the judge who does what is right. That's the final thing about the parable. Jesus casts the father as the planner with great purpose and the master with a generous heart and the father with great patience. But ultimately, he ends up with the judge who does what is right. God's the judge. When you deal with Jesus, you deal with the judge. Jesus said, all judgment is committed to the Son. See, there is an arbiter in this universe, and ultimately, there is a God who does what is right. 
And in this parable, Jesus describes how history will move from the people who rejected ultimately the promised one to a people who were without God in the world and not a covenant people, but now we're invited in, we who are Gentiles. The covenant now comes to us. See, in, in the coming of Jesus and the story of Christmas, the truth of God's love is brought near to us. We who are not the physical descendants of Abraham, God embraces in his love through Christ. The judge does what is right. We don't always do what is right. We often choose the wrong way instead of the right way. Sometimes it's more profitable. Sometimes we think it's less painful to tell a lie than to tell the truth. But God is the one who does what is right. I read this story. And I think, Lord, in my time and my space, how can I be a steward of the vineyard that pleases you? If I am to give an account to the judge one day of my keeping of the garden, how can I do it? in a way that pleases you. He's the judge of all the earth. We give account to him. And I see in the parable the way God wants me to be. He wants me to be like him with the purpose in my heart of loving him and others with a generosity reflecting the heart of God, with a patient love toward those around me, and a determination to live my life conforming to his will. If I could, I'd pull every mind and heart, every thought in the room, I'd pull it right into Jesus right here, right now. If I could capture everybody's thinking, I'd funnel you all into Jesus about whom we sing and about whom this season revolves. And let him be the focus and heart of your life and spend your days and your energy knowing and loving and serving him. Why? Because it's his vineyard. And he came to set us free. And he gave his life. See, the miracle of Christmas is that God sent his son and they threw him out and killed him. But in the very act of his crucifixion, he bore our sin and set us free. You have no place to go but Calvary for the forgiveness and freedom 
that you seek. It comes alone in Christ, who is the Father's Son, the messenger of the kingdom and the sacrificial lamb. Let's bow together. It'd be wonderful to start this Christmas season surrendering all that you are to the Son who loves you so completely. To the Father who cares for you like this parable describes. If you never trusted Christ as Savior, this would be a great moment to say, Lord, I want you in my life. Forgive me for my sin. I give you my heart. Would you make that prayer right where you sit, turning your heart toward the God who loves you? Father, we pray today that you would have your way in us, that your Holy Spirit would convict and lead us, and God, that we would give you the worship due your name this Christmas season by surrendering all that we are and ever will be to the Christ of Calvary, your Son, that you sent to save us. Lord, I pray that we who know you already would be faithful in the work you've given us to do so that we might hear your well done one day as tenants in the vineyard. God, we pray that you would lead and guide every heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.